Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Welcome to everybody who is tuning in. You are most welcome in my little corner of the interweb, whether you are a regular listener or tuning in for the first time. We are now on episode 25 of the podcast, and even though I've been doing this for some years, it still feels like a rather surreal thing to do. To chat into a microphone and trust that it will not be a monologue, but more like a conversation with time lags. In some respects similar to old-fashioned letter writing, but different in that the reach is wider than a one-on-one conversation by way of letter. To anyone popping by for the first time, I'm Meg and I live in London in the UK. I am a maker, ceramicist, writer and generally curious soul. In my podcasts, I muse about my making life in the widest meaning of the term. I talk about what I am making, but I also like to delve into the why and wherefore of my materials and processes and tease out some of the messier environmental, ethical and psychological considerations involved in my creative practice. How are you all keeping? I hope you're managing to stay well and keeping body and spirit together. As one week of lockdown merges into another, I keep thinking I've not really accomplished that much. But pulling together this podcast has been a nice reminder that by just coming back and chipping away, a body of projects and work does emerge, so I'm probably managing more than I'm giving myself credit for. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs. M. Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word. And anything I mention on the podcast will be in the show notes, which you can find at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. As to any knitting designers or patterns that I mention, the notes will link to the designer's website or Instagram rather than Ravelry pages because I can only access Ravelry for a few minutes at a time and I know that some knitters can't even do that. Also, as a little experiment and as a way for me to continue to develop my skills, I've put together some accompanying footage as I know people like to see what I'm doing as well as just hearing about it. You can find this on YouTube under Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet. And I should quickly add that the vlog is purely an add-on and the audio podcast will not be disappearing anytime soon. So, what do I have in store today? Today's episode involves my first steak, an update on my undies drawer and a spot of mending, as well as a practical announcement. So I hope you have a project and a warm drink or a relaxing tipple to hand. And let's begin. Back in episode 22, I talked about my colour choices and swatching for the Maggie waistcoat, a pattern from Susan Crawford's book, Evolution. Well, several months on, and I finished this garment. In so many ways, it was a first for me. My first waistcoat, or sleeveless cardigan if you prefer, my first all-over colour work knit, and my first attempt at steaking. One of my friends was stunned to hear that I'd never steaked before. It's not a skill that I've actively been avoiding. The need has just never really presented itself before. As I'm only a recent convert to multicoloured garments, and then only in very small doses, and as I generally avoid any hint of vertical stripes in my wardrobe, I am not typically drawn to stranded colour work. It's a testament to how much I love this design by Susan that I was not only prepared to pull together five colours, but also to master a new technique. 
For those of you who don't knit, as I know there are some non-knitters amongst my listeners, steeking is a process whereby you knit a garment entirely in the round, making a few adaptations to incorporate cuts in the future. You include vertical bands of extra stitches at key points, typically at the front where you might have the opening and button band in a cardigan, but also possibly at the v-neck shaping or the armholes. You then cut through these vertical lines, often after reinforcing them, and pick up stitches to knit the button, neck and or armhole bands. As the process involves taking scissors to hours of knitting, it can quite understandably attract anything from excitement through mild apprehension to outright fear. Often you will see people include video footage or photos of them cutting open steak stitches on podcasts or social media posts. Similarly, podcasters often offer reassurance that the knitting really will not unravel from being cut. I therefore thought I would share my thoughts and perspectives, not just about my first steak, but also about how we talk about the challenges and apprehensions associated with new craft techniques. First up, let's talk about the fear. I was a tad apprehensive about the process, not because of the thought of cutting into my work, I knew that generations of knitters have merrily taken scissors to steaks and that they wouldn't have continued to do so if the technique didn't work. Also, I knit this waistcoat with Jameson and Smith two-ply jumper weight, which is a woolen spun yarn that wants to stick together, so I knew that I was setting myself up for success. Rather, my apprehension lay elsewhere. As somebody who is very aware of not wasting resources, I was more concerned about whether the garment would fit me. I had swatched, checked and double-checked my tension, done the arithmetic, checked it several times before casting on, and so on. But we all know swatches can lie. It dawned upon me once I was up and running that I had probably picked one of the more involved projects for my first steek. As this garment is not only steeked up the front, but also has a steek right up the v-neck shaping as well as the armholes, there was absolutely no way of trying it on once I was beyond the lower bodice unlike, say, a yoked cardigan, which I could effectively just treat as a jumper. I had to satisfy myself with a last test try-on once I'd knit to the underarms, and then trust and hope that all my preparatory work would mean a good fit once I cut it open. Speaking of preparatory work, as I was working on the button band steak, it occurred to me that the cutting of the garment is actually the least interesting and informative part of the whole process. I know why vloggers and bloggers document it, it makes for good footage, and of course we are not typically teachers providing a quick tutorial. That said, in my view, the really useful insights are actually everything that happens, or rather should ideally happen, up to that point. So here are some of the insights and tips I wish I'd known beforehand. First, the number of steak stitches in a pattern, i.e. extra stitches that accommodate the cutting, is indicative only, and it's perfectly fine to add a few extra if this makes you feel more comfortable about the process. This pattern recommended eight at the bottom band, i.e. four on each side between the actual garment and the steak cut, and four at each armhole, or two stitches between the garment and the cut. I totally understood the desire to minimise bulk at the arm side, but in future I would probably go with a total of six stitches, just to spare the nerves. 
My second observation is it's really helpful if you can keep the tension as even as possible in the steak area. I'll admit my vertical steak columns look a bit higgledy-piggledy. I was fine in the lower body when I was knitting across the whole circular needle, but as I decreased at the v-neck and the armholes, I defaulted to magic loop and used the middle of the armhole steak stitches as the nominal end of my front and back halves. As a result, the tension went a bit awry there, and I certainly noticed this when I was reinforcing my steaks. Thirdly, next time I will definitely weave in the yarn ends of the colour changes before steaking and picking up stitches for the bands. I found that when I pierced into or between the stitches with a crochet hook to create stitches, there's some pulling through of threads other than the working yarn, as there's loads of floats as well as yarn ends in the button band steak column. Weaving in the ends beforehand would, I imagine, minimise the amount of faffing around with non-working yarn. Another observation is that depending on the design of the item you're steaking, reinforcing and picking up stitches before cutting can feel pretty awkward, clumsy or even impossible until you work out how to make the stitches with a limited range of movement and based on feel rather than sight, as the working yarn will be under the knitted fabric. In fact, I found it so cumbersome to grip and control the thread and fabric with my hand that I ended up taking a very deep breath and adopted the approach in an Anne Kingston video of cutting before reinforcing. I know, what was I thinking? I'm still not sure if I was bullish or foolhardy. Being naturally cautious, I didn't actually cut all the fabric from bottom to top at once. I snipped through a couple of inches of the fabric to give me a bit more space to work and control it, reinforced two inches of steak stitches and then snipped some more. It was probably a mad thing to do on my first ever steak, but it was strangely informative in a rather scary slow motion kind of way. Hardly a tip, but rather an obvious point, is to research how to reinforce and pick up stitches before launching in, because the process is not necessarily intuitive. In fact, I'd say it's quite the opposite. It makes total sense once you know, but it's not necessarily logical in light of the common phrases we use. For example, people often talk about using the crochet method to reinforce a steak, but as somebody who did years of crochet at school, that didn't really compute when thinking about what needed to happen. Partly because in crochet the hook goes in at a 90 degree angle to the stitch on the edge of the fabric, rather than going through the fabric through the middle of a stitch in a top and bottom motion. As we all have different ways of learning and registering information, I will explain what this method looked and felt like to me, just in case that's helpful for anybody else. Yes, I was using a crochet hook, but the technique felt more like I was sewing a chain stitch up the length of the garment. Holding the hook almost vertically, it went through the fabric, picked up the working thread under the fabric, pulled it through, and then through the other stitch on the crochet hook to create a chain. The whole dynamic between the fabric, the hook, and my hand felt to me more like that of a single bobbin sewing machine that creates a chain stitch to clamp fabric together. A critical bit of information about steaking, both when reinforcing the steak stitches and picking up stitches for the band, is where to insert the hook or needle. When reinforcing the steaks, the hook goes through the centre of the stitch and when picking up for the bands, the needle goes into the space between stitches, 
in particular between the first or last garment stitch and the adjacent steak stitch. So if stocking stitch looks like a row of V's, when reinforcing you aim for the point between the legs of the V's and when picking up stitches you aim for the point between the two V's. This is critical particularly if like me you decide to cut before reinforcing. A stitch wants to stay together so if you pierce into the middle of it it will not come unravelled. If however you drift off the line and pierce into the space between stitches those stitches will be inclined to drift apart. Not necessarily disastrously so, but it can make the cut edge look a little ragged and suggest the knitting is trying to unravel. So in light of all this, do I think steaking is difficult or easy and would I do it again? I think my conclusion is steaking is fun, particularly if you enjoy or are fascinated by the mechanics and engineering of textiles. That said, I'm not the kind of knitter who will steak everything to avoid purling. I really don't mind purling. In fact, the variety gives my fingers and wrists a break. And the fear of wasting yarn because I might get my tension wrong far outweighs my excitement about steaking as a technique. That said, I will definitely steak with relish on my next stranded colourwork project. And there will definitely be a next one. Almost certainly Kate Davis' Kanach cardigan from the West Highland Way. More importantly in the context of the podcast though, do I think steaking is an accessible technique and would I encourage others to try it? Absolutely. If it allows you to knit the kind of garment you would like to, don't let the steaking stop you. We all talk about challenging techniques and new experiences differently. Often when we're enthusiastic about something we've learned, we'll focus on how easy and how feasible it is precisely because we want to share that enthusiasm and empower others. The last thing we want to do is add hurdles or doubts when somebody is already apprehensive. So why then have I included a list of observations, tips and a few words of caution? This stems in part from my own cautious personality and my inherent inclination to teach, but also from my background in researching grassroots behaviour change campaigns, in particular environmental ones. The effectiveness of such campaigns depends on a number of factors, but an important one is striking a middle ground between not overemphasizing the challenges, but also not diminishing them. It's important to provide enough supporting information so that somebody is not flummoxed or demoralized when they come up against glitches, but not so much detail that they are overwhelmed. And it's also useful to acknowledge that different people respond to a range of issues very differently. What a first person might take in their stride will floor a second one, but conversely the second one might brush off an unexpected turn that might make the first one throw up their hands and give up. As I said earlier, podcasts are not tutorials, and each podcaster decides for themselves how much of an educational or informative feel they want their work to have. I'm aware that in my podcasts I talk a lot about the why and wherefore of my making choices, but also about the how probably increasingly so. This means I regularly um and are about what I share and how, not just the level of detail but also the focus with which to approach recent projects. And this has certainly got me thinking and mulling over how to discuss some of the more involved or labour-intensive hows in the future. But back to the Maggie waistcoat. Did it actually fit when I cut it open? To my great relief it did. 
And the reason for the great relief was that when I picked the size for the waistcoat, I intentionally went with one that had minimal positive ease. Although it's a layering piece, I didn't want the waistcoat to be oversized as I will wear it with a cardigan most of the time, knowing me. I did decide to make the button band just a smidge wider and to also make eye-cord buttonholes just to give me a tad more ease. But overall, I'm absolutely thrilled with my Maggie waistcoat and there will definitely be more colour work in my future. Last episode, I waxed lyrical about knitting vests and today I'm recording in my rather cosy woolly pointel vest. Construction-wise, it's very simple. It's just a tube with the merest hint of waist shaping. And finishing-wise, I didn't really do anything complicated. I decided to adopt the vintage approach of stitching straps to the garment. Somewhat surprisingly, I don't actually have a ribbon box in my sewing supplies, so I ended up trawling the internet for some options. I was hoping to find some silk satin, which I could then possibly dye with madder, but I struggled to find any. Or rather, I did find one source, but the cost of postage would have been twice as much as the cost of a metre of ribbons, so that just felt a bit daft. All the other satin ribbon that I turned up was made of polyester, and after having gone to such care about choosing the wool for this vest, I really didn't want to finish the undergarment with polyester straps. So I decided I would hold off purchasing ribbon until non-essential shops reopen, but to allow me to wear the vest in the meantime, I made some temporary straps out of scraps of cotton lawn. Having focused on knitting a lacy vest for Luli's frivolous make-along, it did bring home to me how tatty my underthings are looking. I'm sure I'm not the only one who ekes out their underwear for a few more washes or a few more months, whether for financial or environmental reasons. Having looked at my sorry pile of undies, with the exception of a few recently stitched pairs of knickers, I decided I really needed to address the underwear drawer, and resolved that every time I got the cutting mat or sewing machine out, I would make a point of cutting out or running up a couple of pair of undies, so that I could systematically retire my tatty smalls and replace them with new ones. So, one Saturday in February, I popped the walking foot on the sewing machine and set about sewing some pants together. I had bought some fold-over elastic for this project, as I decided that after my last few pairs of undies, that the pretty Pico elastic commonly referred to as knicker elastic lacks body. Fold-over elastic, often abbreviated to FOE, was getting good reviews from other makers, so I decided to give this bias-binding-like elastic a try. One leg in, though, I noticed that I was feeling more and more queasy, and my tension was going awry, resulting in a crispy bacon-like finish to the edges. I powered on to finish that first pair of undies, but then decided I must have a migraine brewing, so I aborted sewing for the day. As the migraine didn't materialise, I fired up the sewing machine again on the Sunday to make the second pair of undies I had cut, but the same thing happened again, and then the penny dropped. The smell of the elastic was triggering the headaches and nausea. This sounds daft and a bit melodramatic, I know, but one of the symptoms of fibromyalgia can be an overhyped sense of smell. And to me, the elastic smelt like hot bitumen, that gagging smell you experience when they are relaying roads. As I put the sewing aside, I was frustrated at my scrambled central nervous system, but it also got me thinking. 
Knickers, as in some kind of bifurcated undergarment, have only really been around for a couple of hundred years, and for most of that time they were made of woven cloth. Why then was I fussing around with jersey, a fabric I don't particularly enjoy working with, and elastic that was making me ill? Was it because at some point we were collectively told that knickers made from stretch-knit fabric are modern and the height of comfort, or that it's essential to get that sleek look over clothes, or a way for knickers to appear invisible under well-fitting clothes? Or was it simply because 95% of female underwear offered in shops is made out of knit fabric because it's better for retailers' bottom line? The reality is I generally wear A-line skirts and reasonably capacious dresses most of the time, so I'm not that fussed about invisibility issues. And as for being modern for the sake of somebody else's profit margin, well, that's overrated. And then I remembered that the first pair of undies I ever made were a bikini-style pair made out of cotton lawn at a workshop on sewing elastic. I'd even bought a pattern several years ago with the intention to make more along these lines. So the next weekend I dug out the pattern by sew over it in order to make a wearable toile of these knickers. Before I could start I had to regrade the pattern as it only came in a small range of double sizes, the largest of which wasn't going to do the trick. However, as it's a really simple pattern that was a very easy process. I measured the distance between the largest size and both of the next sizes down to work out what the increments were per size increase. Then I plotted those increases in a series of dots around the pattern, so with a larger increase at the side seams, waist and the top of the leg curve, but tapering down to smaller increases around the lower leg curve and the gusset. After that it was just a matter of connecting the dots. This particular pattern is cut on the bias, that is at a 45 degree angle to the grain line. That makes the pattern more fabric intense, but it does help with wearing ease. As these knickers were an experiment to see if I could A, make a pair that would fit me, and B, whether I would find them as comfortable in practice as jersey undies, I chored my scrap and reclaim box. And I found the leftovers of an Ogden camisole that I'd scrapped as it didn't fit me comfortably. I had already harvested bias binding from the back panel, but by unpicking the bust darts I'd added to the cami, I could eke out enough fabric for my knicker toile. Making these undies involved adding a new sewing machine skill to my armoury. The design is based on finishing the waist and the leg edges with a three-thread stitch on the overlocker or a satin stitch on the sewing machine. Although I have an overlocker, it tends to behave like a truculent teenager most of the time, and I really couldn't face doing battle with it to master a new stitch, so I settled on sewing a satin stitch on my regular machine. This involves making sure you have plenty of thread on both the reel of cotton and the bobbin, and setting the machine up to a simple zigzag stitch, but with the widest possible width and a very short length. The latter must be long enough for the machine to actually feed the fabric through the footer, but close enough that there is almost no space between the stitches. So in my case that was about 0.4 on the dial. And then you feed the fabric through, with the outer edge lined up to the needle point on the inside of the machine. The fabric moves through the machine painstakingly slowly, and it's important not to push it or pull it, but it does produce something that looks like a three-thread overlock finish. Like everything, it takes a bit of practice to get a consistent finish. 
My first efforts were admittedly a bit ragged, as the stitch draws the edge in so it's tricky to keep the fabric lined up, particularly as the drawing in can cause the fabric to pop up over the sleigh-like footer of the sewing machine. I found the process went much smoother when I swapped out the footer for something that I think might actually be a satin stitch footer. I'm not sure as it was an unidentified spare part that came with the machine. It is shorter in length than the sleigh-like footer and instead of having a V-like bird-in-flight opening on the regular footer, it has the tiniest slit on the footer at the right-hand side of the needle hole, so the fabric is less inclined to work its way out. As I said, this may or may not technically be a satin stitch footer, but it certainly improved this consistency on my edges. I would add that my sewing machine is a simple Yanomi, so nothing special, yet it still included this footer as part of the deal. So if you're minded to try this finishing technique, it's worth checking which spare parts came with your machine. When I tried the knickers on for size after attaching the waist elastic, I concluded that the 12s are a very respectable first draft. My grading had worked out and they were perfectly wearable. Design-wise, though, they were a little short in the body for my liking, so I decided I would modify the design slightly for the next iteration, by raising the waistline by about 5cm or 2 inches. My inspection of my first almost finished 12 spurred me to question a couple of features of knicker construction that we consider so self-evident that we never really give them a second thought. The first was due to the slightly lumpy transition in the edging where the front panel meets the gusset and the gusset the back panel. The layer of cotton lawn on the outside and the cotton jersey on the inside as well as the trimmed seam allowances meant that there was quite a lot of fabric at the gusset seam for the machine to manoeuvre over. I knew that the edge stitching would become tidier with practice but it did make me wonder whether maybe I should be using a different fabric for the gusset lining. And I wondered what older patterns for woven undies suggested for this. Did they recommend a cotton flannel instead of a bulky single jersey or, or what? So later that evening I leafed through old sewing manuals of the 20s and 40s to look at what they advised for undies. And I trawled the internet for vintage knicker patterns to see what fabric they recommended for the gusset. From what I could find, neither the drafting manuals nor patterns from the 50s or even well into the 60s that turned up recommended anything other than the woven fabric used for the rest of the pattern. And sewing patterns only seem to consistently include both a gusset reinforcement and the recommendation to use a scrap of cotton jersey fabric from about the 60s and the 70s onwards, when they also listed polyester knit blends as possible fabrics for the undies. On this basis, I concluded that the cotton jersey gusset, which is a fixture on most modern-day undies, was not an essential, but the solution to a problem created by using synthetic fabrics around the nether regions. On that basis, as my knickers will be made of cotton or linen, I decided to dispense with the cotton jersey and just use the main fabric for the lining in future pairs. Secondly, as I was trying these knickers on as I went along, the first fitting involved trying them when they had elastic at the waist but none at the legs. And I was surprised at how remarkably comfortable they were. As someone who's always been a bit chubby around the thighs, I've had my fair share of knicker elastic biting into the skin, but I don't think it ever occurred to me to dispense with the elastic altogether until I was testing a pair of half-finished undies. 
Once again, I decided to do some digging about when elasticated leg holes started to appear. Although bloomers with ribbons at the thighs were an option in the 20s, throughout the first half of the 20th century, most of the designs didn't involve elastic around the legs. Not on the floaty French knickers, also known as tap pants, not on stepping combinations, and not on more dainty styles of the 40s and even 50s. This sparing use of elastic certainly made sense, as it was originally only available as a natural product made from the sap of rubber trees, which typically needed to be imported from South and Southeast Asia. In fact, elasticated leg holes only seemed to consistently come into play in sewing patterns of the 1960s, when skirt hems crept up, presumably for reasons of public decency, by which time synthetic elastic had appeared on the scene. I decided that I would dispense with the leg elastic in the next few pairs and wear the undies for a bit to see what I prefer. If I decide I need it after all, I can easily sew it in later, and if not, I can save a few pounds and avoid a bit of synthetic material in the process. Since the first twirl, I've run up a couple of other pairs. The second experiment is longer in the body and therefore required more fabric. For this one, I harvested cotton from one of Mr M's old shirts. After he wore through the cuffs and collar, I adopted it as a nightshirt, but it has since worn quite thin, so I cut a pair of knickers out of the back panel. This version was definitely more comfortable around the front, but was a little full around the back. Having moved the waistline up, the knickers were now sitting around my upper lumbar region. I know from making tops and dresses that this is the area where I need a swayback adjustment because the curve of my spine is more concave than most patterns cater for. So I redrew the back part of the pattern to accommodate my swayback. I did this by lowering the centre back by about 4cm, or approximately 1.5 inches, and then tapering that line back up to the waistline, and that seems to really hit the mark. Making a swayback adjustment to a knicker pattern feels barkingly surreal, but also quite glorious, in a very practical sense, of course. It also sums up what can happen when we question an approach, design or norm that has been accepted as a default, or the it's always been done this way, when in fact that always is often only a few generations old. Obviously, if we questioned everything all the time, we'd drive ourselves mad and never get anything done. But there is definitely merit in occasionally checking in on why something is the way it is, and more importantly, whether it actually still serves us, whether that's in our wardrobe, our pantry, our schools, towns, or even communities. There was also quite a lot of mending in February. I have a modestly sized wardrobe, which means I rotate through my clothes quite quickly. That means a lot of wear and tear, so in time they do need to be repaired. Some repairs you see coming, like thinning elbow patches or socks, but others come out of the blue, like a rip in my favourite nightie. Favourite nightdress is probably over-edging it slightly. My me-made nighties aren't anything special. I basically took the Merchant and Mills trapeze pattern, scooped out the neck a little, graded up at the sides to give me plenty of ease for when I'm tossing and turning in bed, and then made them in dead stock brushed cotton, in this particular case a flannel with a paisley print in various shades of raspberry and cherry. 
One morning, after a particularly fitful night, I noticed there was a horizontal tear about 7 centimetres, or just under 3 inches, in the back, about a third of the way down from the shoulder, running at a 90 degree angle from the armhole towards what would be my shoulder blade. I have no idea how I did this, but as this is A, my favourite nightdress, and B, my nightwear drawer consists of two nighties and one of Mr M's old shirt, this particular garment vaulted straight to the top of my mending list. I decided that the best approach was to sandwich a piece of cotton between the back and the back facing, pin that in place, and then, using a herringbone stitch, sew all the layers together, but in such a way that I was sort of lashing the halves of, on either side of the tear together. The herringbone stitch is a sort of open cross stitch with the legs of the cross slightly staggered so they are not crossing in the middle. I used a white thread for this repair in keeping with the background colour of the fabric. Then, to further reinforce the repair, I locked the sandwich cotton scrap to the back and the facing with some stab stitches in deep pink embroidery thread. Where possible, I picked out some of the lines in the paisley pattern. And where there was an expanse of white background, I drew a few tiny teardrop motifs with stab stitches. I had toyed with the idea of using French knots, as I do like the look of the stitches, and it would have added an interesting texture. But, in light of the sensory overdrive I mentioned earlier, I had visions of me waking up with a stiff shoulder from them, in some sort of modern-day version of the Princess and the Pea fairy tale. So in the end, I settled for the humble herringbone stitch and a few stab stitches. A simple and quick repair, and it means that I've got my favourite nighty back. Before I sign off, I'd like to announce that I've finalised issue two of the pamphlet, which appropriately is titled Mending and Experimenting, two themes that have been occupying both my mind and making for quite some time, and will probably continue to do so. For people new to the podcast, I occasionally publish a pamphlet of essays that delve further into some of the themes and topics I discuss here. With essays, I mean reflective, long-form non-fiction in the journalistic sense rather than the academic sense. Issue 2 will contain four essays on issues such as visible and invisible mending, an unexpected window for experimenting, how I navigate some of the dilemmas related to hands-on experimental exploration, and the second instalment in the lexicon of the maker's home. I've just had a print proof made up for a final proofread in the finished format ahead of organising the print one. To help me gauge interest, I'm opening my shop for pre-orders. Rather than use Etsy this time, I will be selling the pamphlet through my ceramics website going forward, as it's just easier for me to keep everything in one place. You can find this at megroper.co.uk in the shop section under written work. I hate to mention the B word, but there are a couple of things I need to flag due to Brexit. First, my pamphlets are fat-free in the UK, as this country treats them as magazines, which are not subject to VAT. They may, however, attract VAT or sales tax in your country, but I've set the price of the zine at £7 so that a single issue plus standard postage to the European Union should fall below the de minimis VAT level for most EU countries. I've not managed to find up-to-date information on all countries, but I know that many EU countries do not levy VAT on postal orders from the UK if their value is below €22. 
I can't guarantee that this is the case in every country, but I do hope that this means most, if not all, customers in the EU can avoid additional tax charges on the pamphlet. Secondly, as UK businesses, especially smaller businesses, are in a bit of a regulatory limbo at the moment due to Brexit, there's quite a lot of uncertainty about which rules and guidance that originated in the context of implementing EU legislation and regulations still apply and which don't. I'm therefore not sure if the previous VAT exemption on digital sales that I relied on still applies. For this reason, I can't currently offer the pamphlet in a digital format in any country, EU or otherwise. This may change in the future, if and when new arrangements and guidance comes into place, but I can't give any indication as to how likely that is. I realise that international postage can be a bit pricey, particularly due to all the changes to flights due to Covid, and that sometimes people like to club together to share these costs by placing one order for multiple copies. As the weight-based postage function in online shops isn't that sophisticated, sometimes orders for multiple copies can tip into the next postage pan due to it counting the weight of the packaging multiple times. Therefore, to give you an idea, the lowest postage rate band, which is 250 grams, would cover two copies, but probably not a third. The next band up, which is 500 grams, should cover about five to six copies, even if the website generates a higher postage rate. As always, if the actual weight of an order brings it into a cheaper postage band, I will refund overages upon posting. All being well, I hope to get the pamphlet printed in the third week of March so I can start sending out copies before the end of the month. And of course, I'll add the remaining copies of issue one to the website as well, just in case anybody wants to get their hands on the first issue at the same time. Well, that's more than enough for one episode, plus my voice is starting to go. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever form it currently is taking, and whatever your medium may be.